Welcome to the Meeple Syrup After Show, Designers Discussing Design, Episode 73. And we go deep! That's right, we're talking board game design, we're talking about replayability, we're talking about what makes people come back to games over and over again, and we managed to convince Scott to come back with us, so scared Kane away, uh, probably <laughs> the responsible one out of the two. But probably. Scott is a glutton for punishment and stuck around with us uh, Meeple Syrup folk. He's also on the West Coast. So he's yeah. uh, He's got the West Coast factor, and I mean, he's traveling around all the time. So really, his clock's yeah. probably all messed up, anyways. But that's <laughs> true. But so, here we are. What What do you What do you think? Uh, let's just open this right up. Uh, what What are some factors that make a game replayable for you? What What makes you keep coming back to to some games? I'll start with Sam. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, a lot of people, oh, it's got to have a modular board and it's got to right. be variable this and we've got to have different expansions. And no, you know what makes it <laughs> replayable is that it's fun. <laughs> I mean, simple, right? It's the, like, if it's not fun, I don't care how modular it is. And oftentimes a lot of those modularity pieces, they just add confusion to the mm -hmm. game. They don't add anything except more setup time, more rules, more edge cases that I have to then design around and balance and rebalance. Yep. So I'm not the hugest fan of modularity. I don't mind a well-thought-out expansion. Sure. But I find you a lot of things... don't necessarily you know, plan all your expansions before you've made a really fun game. Like, yeah. Worry about making the most fun first-time experience. For sure. And, I mean, Scott has it right when he says, you know, I look for the fun. I find the fun. And that's what Jay and I have been preaching for, you know, a decade now is that, you know, you, you, you have to find what is the most fun thing about this game that I'm designing and then go after that. And everything else just kind of goes away or sort of falls to the wayside organically as you realize that that thing that you thought was cool might mathematically be cool but is really not fun in, in life and in playing it real life on the table. And so that, that's the important thing for you designers out there is, you know, what's good up here isn't necessarily good on the table. Um, and a lot of times people get so caught up in, oh, no, I have to make X number of cards. I have to make a huge deck of, you know, random events and all these things. And at the end of the day, it really probably doesn't matter uh, if the core game itself, A, isn't fun, and B, if all that additional stuff adds rules and layers of unnecessary complexity that Scott was talking about as well, that then just take away from the fun. So I just want a game to be fun. That's all I care about. So what, about you, what about you, Tyler? What, what other things do you see working for replayability, or is there some well, examples out there that drive you nuts? Like I, I just want to comment with what Sen was saying there, because you look at something like Machu Coro and Dice City. They're very similar games, but with Machi Coro, you're rolling. Everyone can get money, at least they're still doing stuff. But Dice City, you're just sitting there waiting for your turn. But as a game, I like Dice City much better. So it's like one has one really cool thing, but the game is, ah, the other one is, the game is, ah, and it just doesn't have that. So it's it's almost like it's a, a fine line in between them. Um, but I agree with, oh, go ahead. sorry. I was just going to say, you know one, one thing recently that drove me nuts when it came to replayability is the amount of cards provided in code names. How, like, how many of those clue oh, cards? Yeah. yeah. There's, like, a stack, like, this thick. There's no way someone is memorizing and needs that many uh, cards and code names. Um, I think the fun factor 
Um, but fun is different. Like, it's so different for so many people. Yeah, because for sure. I, like, yeah. I can play Zoo Loretto, and I always use my neighbor's mom as an example because Wendy is a kind, loving person, but I'm not going to play 90% of my game. I'm going to play Zoo Loretto the dice game with her, and she is going to love it and have a great time, but I'm going to sit down and try to explain cacao, and she's going to look at me like I have three heads, <laughs> even oh. though it's not that difficult of a game. But I love playing them both. Um, or something like Spit It Out by R&R Games. I love that game so much, and it's just, you know, cards and words and cards and words and cards and words. Yeah. Um, it definitely, it's definitely, like, defining fun, and it sounds like Renegade Game has a vision of what our kind of fun games. Scott kind of sees it when he sees it. What Can you describe a little bit so far of, like, how you are capturing the fun? Um, I'm, I mean... You know, like, it, it's not really an exact science. I mean, like, you, you guys have all said it. Um, you have to want to replay it. For me personally, the, the thing that gets me coming back a lot of times to, to any game is if I can come back to it and play it slightly differently, right? It's like different strategic decisions and say, well, let me see how that works. Um, a lot of times I play games and I kind of don't care if I win. I just want to see how this works out. Yep. Right, it's like it's like an experiment. Oh, let me see how this works. Oh, it didn't work well at all. Oh, well, you're okay, those cause guys. I can, yeah, because I can play it again. Yeah. You know, it, it's not like I can't play the thing more than once. It doesn't explode after I'm done. Um, <laughs> Although that would be pretty cool. That well, that might be an interesting. It's having sales benefits. <laughs> right. <Proto bomb. laughs> yeah, yeah. So, how about you, Daryl? What makes a game replayable? What what gives a game depth for you? Yeah, I mean, I agree with the fun statement, obviously, but it, I, I think they're like uh, like Scott's saying, there's a bit of a mystery there. I mean, you're talking uh, like keeping the flow channel kind of going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something like pie in the face is hilarious. It gives you <laughs> pie face. an experience, but Not it's like funny. a very quick, you know, wham bam, you know, good story to tell. But and that and that is a great game. But then also, I'm you know, if I was always just turning to pie face. I'd probably be disappointed because for me, I'm looking for a variety of experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pie Face is kind of predictable, right? Yeah. Like I, I yeah. But I, I, I just took the thing of whipped cream and just sprayed myself. It's like it's going there anyway. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that keeps me engaged and and has depth and replayability for me is if I can think about the game outside of the game. I talk about meta a lot um, because I'm a huge meta player when it comes to games like Magic or or any army building game like X-Wing. I'll sit and think for hours about the deck I'm building or the army I'm, the list I'm building or this fleet that I'm creating or whatever. And so that kind of game, if there's a simple system that I can build an army with or that I can create something outside of the game to then bring into the game, that really captures my personal engagement. That's I think that that's I really usually like. why drafting or auction games or things like that, where you get to assemble or try to collect, and like Scott was saying, even different different paths to trying, then then you keep coming back because you go, oh well, I wonder if you know that that strategy even that someone used that was horrible. Like I wonder if I could use it and it could be good or that winning strategy. Does that win all the time? And yeah, I mean, I found that with uh, Lagrange. Um, I thought it had great replayability because you can use those cards in so many different ways and you yeah. never have to play the same way twice. Yeah. Scott, you had a point that you were bringing up? Uh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, historically, you know, collectible games, like I spent 
hundreds and hundreds of hours just building decks, mm-hmm. right? And that was yeah. that was almost more fun than playing in tournaments sometimes. Just trying to, it's like the, it's that creative process. You get to play, you get to play in the designer's sandbox, mm-hmm. right? He's giving you all these tools. Now you get to try to make something out of them, and mm-hmm. and that's 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 inherently um, you know a core core part of a collectible game. And I think if you can try to achieve that in a tabletop in a game in a box and a board game experience, it would it's very unique. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's exactly the kind of thing that you're that or one of the things anyways that we try to capture or as designers we'd like to capture in some way, shape, or form is that that ability to engage people about the game outside of the game itself where yeah. they can still be thinking about it. And, and the multiple paths to victory that we always talk about really is an engagement piece in a lot of ways um, because if there only is one dominant strategy, then we kind of just always do that. And right. that may not be super engaging. Or it may be engaging, but not because of the game itself. It's more engaging because of the people you're playing with or something right. like that. So a game like, you know, um, say Euchre or Tissue or mm-hmm. something like that, very you know, classic, semi-classic type card game, the mechanics are not that engaging, but it's all the rest of it around the table that is why I like those types of games as well. Uh, Tyler, you had a question. Uh, yeah, I have a question for Scott uh, about Renegade games, uh, actually. Um, when you're deciding what what fits the company, um, have you had those moments where you have to think outside the box? Say, hey, this isn't exactly our core thing, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take a chance, or I really believe in this game, even though it's different than our ensemble, and I'm gonna go with that. Um, yeah, I'd say especially in the future, you'll probably see some stuff that kind of fits in that. Like, right, we're we're really young, right? Yeah. So I think right now, lanterns is probably the thing that most people will associate us with, and Gravwell and things like that, which are you know, for lack of a better term, I kind of hate some of these terms like gateway games and um, filler games. Like, they're just games. But, yep. you know, um, yeah, I think you'll see that in the future. And um, that's something that I've kind of struggled with also internally because we, we've kind of built this brand and people expect one thing from us. So we have to figure out how to be able to communicate to our, our players when we do put something out that might not be what we're known for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's going to be... That'll be a challenge. Okay. Would you ever think of creating a sub-brand? Yes. Like, like Renegade Renegade? <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we've, we've talked about that as well. So uh, one area that we're looking into for next year, and, and the game that, uh, that Kane mentioned, Slap It, is kind of part of that family. Mm-hmm. These are games that are aimed towards... Uh, Mom and pop toy shop, like the right. toy, yes. the specialty toy industry, and I think you know we've talked about this. I, yeah. I know Daryl and I talked about it in New York. Um, those stores reach a totally different demographic than what we reach in the hobby, and they reach a totally different demographic than what, say, a Barnes and Noble reaches too. Yeah. Um, but there's some the potential there's, there with mum blogs and. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and they're entry level, right? Mm-hmm. So, and they're those stores, customers. they are, they are, and they're. They, their sweet spot is kind of 6 to 10-year-olds, and yes. they also don't want games that cost more than about $20. That's kind of their right. cap price point-wise as well. Um, so I kind of view 
view games as um, kind of like a cradle-to-grave sort of thing. We want to engage... Our industry really should be engaging kids mm-hmm. as young as, you know, four, five, six years old in games that aren't your traditional, you know, all the games that we kind of grown to hate um, and, and outgrew, you know. Um, I, I would rather see three- and four-year-old kids playing something different besides, like, Candyland. Well, it just opens up the mind because right. then it goes, oh, there's so much more out there I should explore. Right, and that's where it becomes more of a family lifestyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like Ger- Germany is a great example. You go to Essen, you know, and it's not like Gen Con. Gen Con yeah. are, it's the core industry fan yeah. base that, you know, that we all, uh, that we are all used to. You go to Essen and it's families. Totally. It's totally mainstream. Spectrum. Yeah, totally like mainstream families walking around, walking out with giant stacks of games, you know, above their head. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's interesting though because I mean, you go to a place like Tokyo Toy Fair and it's like the geekiest of the geeky. Yeah. It's it's very it's very very niche, right? And yes. the, you know what's funny? I was talking to uh, Tanya Thompson uh, with Mastermind Games. And uh, she had just been at Nuremberg and was at New York Toy Fair when I was chatting with her. And it was also interesting to hear her talk about even anything from, like, even the after-party meetings and such at New York Toy Fair was still, you know, you'd go, you'd have a drink, but you still talk business the whole time. In Nuremberg, there's games all over the place. And so yeah. you hang out and you play games in the evening with each other. And So there's, a, a like, a real potential cultural opportunity still, I think, in North America of people really like Scott's describing, this lifestyle opportunity mm-hmm. where it's just normative. It's, you know, oh, like, so-and-so taught me this game as kids, and they teach their neighbors, they teach their class. You know, there's well, a, a... I mean, it, it's definitely definitely something that's happening. Um, if you remember back a couple couple years ago when Hasbro was starting to reignite game night idea, that, you know, family game night type thing, yeah. um, because, I mean, they have the ad dollars to do that kind of kind of market push. Uh, and then you see, obviously, with game cafes coming up now, more and more, um, is it a neighborhood game cafe where people are going and then going back to their homes and having games there? I, I do think that there's a real lifestyle shift for some people uh, once they find games. For my family, it's always this is just the way we are. <laughs> we play games every day. Um, but for some other people who are just finding the hobby, I know that and that's why a lot of people ask those questions online, like, I, I love games, how do I get my spouse to play games, or how do I get my kids to play games, or when I'm playing games with my kids, should I beat them? There's all these sort of interesting questions from people who are really new to yeah, this whole scene. Exploring. Yeah. And Mastermind, Scott, um, is Canada's sort of... Um, it's not quite a boutique toy shop. It's it's a chain, mm-hmm. uh, but it's that level that you're talking about, not mom and pop. Yeah, but... like 45, 50 stores type thing. Yeah. Right. So there's um, a chain in North America called uh, Marvel's the Brain Store. Yeah, it's yeah. very similar to Marvel's. Yeah. Okay. Except more, yeah. more, more kid level. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's funny, actually, you should say that, because, uh, yeah, when I was with, with uh, CSE Games doing their booth, Marbles came by in very similar type of which games they pointed out that they would be ordering. Yeah. Same with Think Fun. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, you yeah. mean Mastermind? Or Mastermind, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Brain fart. Yeah, I, 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 it's hard for me to remember. Scholar's choice. Well, and the worst part was we were next to Think Fun. 
So that really threw me off. That was pretty funny. <laughs> I, when when you said that to her, I was saying, "Oh, that's that's kind of awkward," <laughs> but I guess not. You know, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like scholars' choice too. Uh, that's a good that's a good analogy as well, uh, Tyler. Uh, we have a, a teaching a teacher supply store, hmm. Scott, that sells just teaching supplies, but it's headquartered in London, Ontario. Yeah, there there right. were. I, right, I worked there for three years. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, and, I mean. Yeah. No, I was going to say, so I get I get hit up by libraries quite a bit mm. um, that are starting to put games in yep. mm-hmm. because, right, libraries are a great place. They're they're looking to maintain their relevance. Yeah, and keep engaging the community. and Right. And yeah. they, they're, they're, right, they're kind of evolving into more of like a community center yep. than, than just a place to go check out books, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think they're, there's they're, a lot. They're, they're a hub, right, of right. culture. Mm-hmm. And games should definitely be a part of that culture. In fact, I mean, like, I'm running a uh, game jam with FIMS, which is our uh, Western University here in London, Ontario, which is the uh, Faculty of Information Management Systems and Sciences, sorry, Sciences, uh, librarians. How do you get that on a business card? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, uh, so the faculty there contacted me um, through Scott Nicholson, of course. Scott Nicholson used to be a librarian, so there you oh, okay. go. Um, and... And a lot of his papers are focused on libraries. Gaming in libraries, yeah. And so we've come up with this idea to do a game jam um, and then see if we can bring that out to the libraries and definitely bring gaming out into the libraries. Uh, They are really, the librarians, the students, are really, really hype on bringing gaming into the libraries. So Mm -hmm. it's it's happening at the educational level. Yeah, there's actually a librarian's convention um, Mm -hmm. Every year in North America, I think it's in Philadelphia um, or somewhere out there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I That's, mean, that sounds like where it would be. They yeah. Scott, Scott's gone to it a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? oh cool. yeah. Yeah, then that, that's the kind of thing. I, th- I think there's another great avenue. I mean, Barnes and Noble commercially is awesome, mm-hmm. uh, but then if people who couldn't afford to buy, who you know needed to go to the library to use you know, a lending library of games. I think that's another great opportunity for people to learn to love games. And, I mean, more than just chess. Um, I mean, I played chess at the library and go at the library as a kid, but I would have loved to play other games at the library, too. There's a, and there's a few different creative programs. I mean, I just, uh, when I was at the New York Toy Fair, I got to chat with the Brooklyn Game Labs. Oh, right, yeah, guys yeah. Those there, guys. And got to catch up with them again, and they're doing some cool after-school programs where they're getting kids designing games and even designing expansions. It's really fun. I don't know if it'll work out, but they had done an expansion for Colt Express, and they were pitching, when I saw them, they were pitching a kid's design, like, from the club, from the game lab, uh, kids had designed a New York 1901 expansion, so oh, nice. just a little, wow. you know, a few few extra tile type thing with some new rules and a few new cards. And again, it was this idea of kids coming together and engaging their creativity, and you know, associating a whole bunch of different learning tasks uh, with this after-school program. So I mean, some really cool stuff going on. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of public schools in London that the teachers have done that as part of class projects, is having the kids uh, design games. And a friend of mine from Iona Station, which no one watching will know. I uh, know <laughs> Iona Station, though. I've been there. I, I know Iona yeah. Station. He but runs uh, Pierce Williams uh, Retreat. Yeah, and there's a I love giant, the There's a giant uh, camping convention in 
Buckeye, Ohio, wherever yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. And there, he's like, Tyler, I'm running a, a seminar on gaming at camp. What should I talk about? And I was like, nice. wow, that's awesome. So, you know, there's like seven, 800 people going to this camping convention, and now they're bringing board games into that aspect. Too. Wow, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's also um, about two years ago, Boy Scouts here in North America, or in the U.S. rather, uh, introduced a game design merit badge, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that was pretty cool. So now you, you know, the, like the camping thing reminded me of it because now you have you know kids going off to summer camp and they're actually working on game design. Yeah, so, which is pretty cool. I'm I'm a counselor for it here, and I actually got a chance to look at the book when they were developing it um, through Scouts and everything. But yeah, it's really cool, and it didn't. Yeah, there's definitely the video game piece of it, but it really focuses on board games because that's kind of the basics of all game design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And know, it's, it's doable, right? Right, right. Now, for them to, know a scripting language. Yeah. For them to earn their badge, do they have to like sign a waiver saying you get the rights to the game? Or? <laughs> no, no. But um, I'm, there, it's actually pretty cool. Some Boy Scouts, this was up on Kickstarter like six months ago. Uh, they... These, these scouts actually designed a game for their merit badge, and uh, one of the adults in their troop, the scoutmaster or something, decided that, wow, this is pretty cool. Let's put it on Kickstarter and actually try to make the game. And they ah. got it funded. Yeah, and they, they, they made the game. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, I mean, that, that, was... that, to me, is what Kickstarter is for. Yes, right? yes I agree. That's <laughs> a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole culture of Kickstarter is just wonky, right? Oh, so. boy. I mean, I, I'm happy for everybody who who makes money on it, and I or never makes money even does with stuff. so many negative comments on it until this Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles campaign. Man, welcome crazy. to pop culture licenses. Yeah, yeah. anything with a major license yep. on Kickstarter is a nightmare. <laughs> oh, just in, well, just in general, right? Because you get a very passionate fan base. Yes, for sure. Right, and they're they're very invested in these characters and storylines and basically the whole world. Yeah. And when when you're a fan that's that in I mean, trust me, that's like the majority of my career has been doing license license sure. stuff. Um, people that's it. That's it's their lifestyle. And yeah. when you do something in that world that maybe they're 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 very cautious about things in their world, right? So yes. Yeah. Very protective, very, very protective. concerned. Yeah, and, and I mean their their level of geek credibility is based on their knowledge of canon and all yes. that type of stuff. And when you go off canon, they're going to actually probably think they're gaining something by telling you you're not following. Yeah, right. Right. Oh, sure. right. They're trying to protect right. you. Yeah, yeah. Right. But on the other hand, I mean that's that's what that you know when you're doing a licensed product, it's all about those people. Sure. That's, you're there to serve them, really. Yeah, if yeah, you can, some way. if you can engage those people and then point right. them in the right direction, right. then they're they're your your cheerleaders. Right. Yeah, you're you're hoping, anyways, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, Scott, um, can we talk? Seeing as we're talking about game depth and replayability, can we talk about um, your past products, um, the how to host a murder stuff? Oh okay. yeah. I just heard about I this. I talked to about it. He's like, really? Crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so I came in, when I got came to Decipher, those, I mean, those products had been out for a long time, way before me, right? They they actually first started in 1982. Wow. Um, so they, so How to Host a Murder Mystery is, was actually recognized at one point at Gen Con when they were doing this big thing as the very first LARP product. Sure. And it, 
right? It really is. Right? Totally. Role play. Um, I'm a lurper. I never right. thought about that. Huh. Uh, yeah, and that's that's how you know that company really kind of got got its big start. They they had their decipher puzzle in the early early days. Um, but yeah, how to host a murder mystery is really cool. Um, I kind of missed that brand. Yeah, well, it was well, wonderful. Well, I don't know if you know this, but you may not have to miss it much longer. Yeah. Really? Bum, bum, bum. Hey. That's the decipher page. Crazy. Oh, yeah. I, I'll, so, wait, that's just their new updated homepage? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, I probably know actually more about that. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure you do. <laughs> it's a... Uh, I, I I hope it I hope it comes out. They've been working on that actually this new relaunch for a few years. Oh good. So, um, I mean, yeah, I've cool. I've done a bunch of them. We had a hoot. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I did but them not when I was very kids. replayable. No. Yeah. Well, they're but, like an escape room type of dilemma now. Same thing, like this box, yeah. you know, escape rooms in a box experience where right. everyone has one great night and then. Yeah. That's yeah. what she said. Oh, uh, <laughs> she did. She did. Somebody had to say it. It was definitely yeah. had to be Tyler. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's actually a guy. He lives. Um, I used to work with him back at Decipher, and now he's at a video game company. Uh, this guy, Mark Tuttle. The during our time there at Decipher, we created one new how to host or mystery title out of the 19, and it, he came up with the name for it, which was really brilliant. It was called an affair to dismember. <laughs> oh, great. so. We wanted to do an election title uh, back in an election year when we were there, and we got shot down. We couldn't. Yeah. But now you could do it with Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Awesome. Here's some real characters. Oh, yeah. Do like a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> it just writes itself. It yeah. does. Too yeah. close to home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what, what do you Canadian, think about it? It's easy to laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh. Hey, Daryl, what do you think about those? Uh, I mean, there's one on Kickstarter right now that is uh, an escape room in a box, basically. Oh, I think it's wonderful. Honestly, I, I I, think it's just a logical next step to the escape room experience. You know, just like I think game cafes are a logical step, you know, so too it's kind of the reverse of now bringing the escape room home. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's puzzling. It's bringing puzzling to the masses. I think it's... Uh, Involving, you know, just creative problem solving. Mm-hmm. So, no, my question: a, uh, choose your own adventure book. In terms of depth, though, and replayability, what do you think? Yeah, no, I I actually think that the conundrum of replayability will be possible. I think there's going to be some ways or solutions. I think one of the solutions is actually app integration. Yeah. Uh, so, to me, that's not a problem. But I also don't. I think. Sometimes we get a little uh, a little too greedy when it comes to replayability. I don't mind paying for a, an experience, a good night. You know, I, I when I go to the movie theater, I don't come home with a DVD. So, you know, oh, 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 you're going to be able to though. Hey, <laughs> watch it. You will. It'll be your ticket will be forty two dollars. You're to watch the movie. You get your DVD. Uh, the movie yeah. theaters will disappear before then. Yeah, Everyone's home experience is actually just too good now, so yeah. no one wants to go to the theater. But that's actually again the idea that escape rooms coming, uh, you know, to wherever someone's hosting, and that excitement level then is also like a way to engage uh, and empower your fan base because now you know maybe even if you make it that the there's a DM in essence, 
in essence, then each person that experiences that now goes out and finds their own group, and they are the DM for their experience. I think if you look at it that way, you don't actually need to make it that it's completely replayable. It just needs to be replayable for noobs, and that someone can kind of look at it as a way to, you know, use a kit or, you know, there's a few angles, but I, I think overall there's lots of room there. Yeah, I mean, Had a Host for Murder Mystery was totally not replayable by by the group, right? Like, once you played yep. through the mystery, you knew it. You knew it. And, and even back then, right, that was the 80s and 90s. The, the 90s was probably its peak, and that was a $32 box game yeah. in the 90s. It's pricey. But, right, but, you know, uh, 32 bucks, and it was for, you know, what was it, five to eight players yeah. that would get together. But for $32 for eight people to be entertained for an evening, That's it's great. not... Yeah, it's not bad, right? Like, even by 90s, you know, pricing standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing is, though, you have to you have to know your audience. Because we did, a, we did a murder mystery with some friends, and one guy just, <laughs> I love him, but it's like, you can't get into it. You're just, you're just standing there in a football jersey trying to be a football <laughs> Really? You're just ruining the experience. Now, I was a tech support guy. And I totally went all in on it. And you know what I, I love? Was, You're I, talking in the roles. You remember yeah, I, it still. So I, I went as an East Indian fellow with a <laughs> with a comb over. So I showed up to the lady's house, and she's like, "What have you done?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm just getting into my character. Like he's fr- like, and I wasn't being racist. It said on the card, "You are from da 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 da." And I said, right. "Okay, well, I'm going to do that then." <laughs> Taking it to the next level. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, Daryl, is there anything in terms of depth and design that you've been thinking about lately, like how to make things simple yet complex? I think that's that's part of the part of the design conundrum. Yeah, no, I, I do. Um, actually, with any game, my goal is um, obviously that people want to come back to it. Actually, um, for me. I want people to actually have an excellent first-time experience, but I also really want them to play again. I mean, if if you just have a one-time, I think as a designer, that's still a tough sell. So, um, so I'm going to focus on trying to give people, you know, multiple plays. But I also try to keep in mind how many times do people actually play games, and what depending on the type of game it is. So, you know, if it's a a, a little card game, that game should be very replayable um, because it's probably going to be played many, many times. If it's a deeper one-hour strategy game and I'm confident that people are going to have a good experience the first ten times they play, that's tons of value. And I'm not, you know, if I'm confident that, you know, people can get that many solid plays out of it before they're starting to look for another big box game or they're looking for an expansion or they're looking for, you know, something to add to the experience... I think that's, uh, you know, you're, you're doing well. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Sen and I know someone that does that to the extreme, Daryl. A uh, nice shout-out to Eric Lalonde, because he <laughs> keeps spreadsheets of how much the game cost him, how many times he's played, what the value of each yeah. play will get as he plays. Nice. It's just like, wow. Honestly, I feel like a game has got, you've got its money's worth. If you, oh, yeah. if you played it even six times, uh, a big game, you know that that game does not owe you a cent. So. <laughs> oh, Daryl knows Eric as well, but yeah, oh, okay. 
Yeah. The uh, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting way of putting that, Daryl, because you're you're right. Those little games tend to get replayed more and more. It's just like the analogy that I would use is I've played Street Fighter, I don't know how many times, like billions of times. Yep. And yet I've probably played, you know, I would never replay a Final Fantasy. Right. Because the but investment to replay is too beautiful high. journey doing it. Yeah, right. I liked it the first time. I don't need to do it again. Yeah. But I need to play Street Fighter like ten times a day or whatever, right? Yeah. And I could see the same thing with like Tissues, my all-time favorite card game, pretty much. Dude, and, I need you to play my Seven Summits card game. It's okay. So fun. We'll send wow. it over. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that that's the kind of thing. Like I would play a card game many, 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 many times. But even you know my favorite of big box games. You know, getting it out to the table. You know, maybe there's a couple other things that get out to the table before that. But I got, I got a question for you on that, that, actually, Sen. Sure. This is this is a Frank uh, Di Lorenzo comment, and it's awesome. So uh, I know he's a huge Tichu fan. Yes. So I showed him my Seven Summits card game and said, "I know you love Tichu. Check this out and tell me if this is like in the realm, because I love Tichu, and and I really feel like this is my first game that I've found that's kind of Tichuish." And uh, and he played it, and right away he was like, "Oh, I will buy this in a heartbeat, but I will never publish this." And uh, and I said, "Oh, <laughs> why?" That's a frank answer. And then I said, "Why?" And he said, "Dude, I couldn't even sell Teach You, and I love Teach You." So so that tells you, like, is Teach You or those kind of games are they sellable? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so. If you look at, say, um, Z-Man, Philosophia's, F to Z's, classic card box line of, you know, Black Spy, yep. um, Chimera, etc., etc., Arboretum. Yep. You they think those sell? They, they seem to have quieted down. Yeah, but I mean... They did real hot when the, first, when the box line released, and then... Yeah, and, and I mean, they, look at Haggis. Haggis is, like, one of these great well-known three-player games, mm-hmm. and it was up for grabs for a while. Yeah. And I, I think they have a, a, a limited audience in some senses, um, because, I mean, how many specialized card decks do you really want to have? Um, but, you know, do you have to... It's just like almost like any other game. You have to make a game that will kill another game or replace another game for... Yeah that player in order for it to see widespread widespread release. And I mean when you when you well you've been to uh, Switzerland. Yep. So you went to the actual place where the only yep. game they make is T shoe. Yeah, I went to that store. I got a custom copy. Yeah, but that's all they do. Yeah. <laughs> they don't make any other game. Oh yeah. And, and it's just like Frank said and he's like, I couldn't even sell that game. Dude, they couldn't. They had yeah. this wonderful game. They ended up outsourcing it multiple times to get Yeah. And that that's that's the thing. It's it's a hard sell. What do you think, Scott? As a as a publisher, a classic card game, how easy is it to sell those? You know, it, in this market, it, I don't think it's very easy. Um, everything right now, like it's we're in a really great space. I think we're we're trying so many new things that it's hard for the tried and true stuff to really get any attention. The right. focus is on. What's new? Why? Right? What's and not not the cult of the new sort of thing, like just the next new thing, but you know, like legacy, right? Is yeah, that's yep. a, new, a new way to experience games ooh, and people ooh, are, climbing right, people are, right? But people are excited about it and rightfully yep. so. It's a new experience. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think I think if you don't have something 
if you don't have a good story to tell as far as, hey, listen, this does something different that you haven't seen before, it's hard to get noticed. Right. So even a game like Diamonds, uh, which I believe is, you know, a great card game, uh, you know, Mike Fitzgerald being an amazing card game designer, I, I call it a new, you know, a nouveau classic type game where yeah. it's you know, this is a modern classic, and if you don't know this game and you like card games, you have to play this game. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I, I, I think, think that's another good example. Like it, but that's a, another example. Well, but that was a box line starter, and I haven't seen number two yet. Right. Oh, good point. Right, because. Um, you know, uh, Stephen has told us before that he's looking for games in that that will fit in that box of that style because he wants to do more of that type of size of game. Right. But you're right. We haven't seen the next one yet, and I wonder well, why. It's a couple well, years now. Well, size is another another thing. I mean, as silly as this seems, um, size matters. Small, yeah, I mean, size matters, right? Small games get lost in the stores. They really right. do. Uh, hobby stores. Right, every hobby store has different racking, has different yeah. ways they lay out their store, and and small games tend to get lost in those stores. Right, yeah. they're they're afraid to put them out on the shelf because they're easy to to, to steal. Yeah. Um, and then they wind up somewhere behind a counter, and they're not really a collectible games. So they don't belong like within all the booster boxes and and stuff, and they they kind of get lost. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. You know, and that's that's part of the reason why you. You often see games that don't need to be in a certain size box in that in a <laughs> oh, box. Oh, sure, uh, Ma- Magic Coro. <laughs> yeah, I mean they need they need some shelf presence or they're just going to get lost. Right. Um, and it's a shame. You know, I kind of like to be green, yeah, right? Yeah. Like in my, in my my personal life, so that's yep. a constant struggle where I'm looking at something and I'm going, well, the box should really be about this big, and then I go, well. You know, Barnes and Noble is going to say then it goes on that rack where yep. you know I call it right. the ugly rack where everything's a mess. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't want to be on that rack. So no. nobody wants to be on the ugly rack. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I guess the the only the only not saving grace of those sides of games, but the only place where those games really actually do stand out is end cap. Yeah. Right, where they're purposely made for an end cap thing, but then again, like you were saying before, Scott, you're looking at a very specific price point, of right? Like well, nine ninety five, and getting getting an on an end cap in a big box store or or even a even a rack that's made for those games uh, in a specialty store like a B and N, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. To get on that prime real estate, it has to have been a good seller before yep. it gets there. Right. And if it gets exactly. lost and nobody can ever find it, right? You know, how does so. it become a good seller, right? Yeah, there's. A, I mean, there's these odd examples now that we can look at, but I totally agree. I mean, uh, the exception. I remember. Um, uh, what's oh shoot? I'm drawing a blank on the name. What app do you play all the time, son? Star Realms. Star Realms. I remember thinking, man, this could be in a bigger box. Like they could make more money off of this, and yet it did so well. And I think. It's appreciated, and people really respect that it, it came mm-hmm. in a small box. But there's an example of a game that could have been lost, and right. yet, thankfully, you know, fans found it, and and especially because of the app, I think they did really well with getting fans to to find it, discover it, love it, and then go out and buy right. it. Well, but also, so um, you know, Rob, um, you know, over at White Wizard that put that yep. game out. Mm-hmm. He has he has a great marketing vehicle yes. that he he has right. He runs 
giant magic events all over the country. Yep. So he has an audience that he can market to. That yep. you know, let's face it, that game is very appealing to that type of card totally. game player. Totally. And yeah. Epic, the follow-up. And, right. Right. Exactly. And Epic is really awesome. Was, he knows um, his fan base. <laughs> absolutely. So he can go off to you know tens of thousands of Magic players that he already has a connection to and say, hey, look, here's something you might be interested in. Yeah, play this on the side in between tournaments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, I do just want to say the irony of at least the three of us talking about replayability in games is the fact that we all have hundreds and hundreds of games. You can play <laughs> a different game every other day, and you're not going to play the same game for two years. So it's how do you even replay stuff? Well, you want to hear something even worse is I, I barely ever get to play published games. I'm always playing games that are prototypes, right? So I sure. actually I am actually relieved when I get to play published games. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually fun. It's good to step away like like Meeple Syrup Camp. Yeah. That was awesome because I I spent so much time just playing prototypes, not even just my own. I, I play other people's prototypes all the time. So it was really quite a, a good time just to sit back and say, I don't have to give feedback at the end of this. I don't have to tell people what I didn't like about this. This this is new. This is great. Yeah. Um, I also have to say that I, I like the Godzilla. Uh, you have two Godzillas up there. What? Oh. Um, oh, sounds a big Godzilla fan. Oh, yeah, let's see. Can I... There. Oh, there yeah, you go. Wow. Oh, very nice. Yeah, Zen, a couple Zen is designing a Godzilla game at the moment. Really? Yeah. Hopefully it should be out this year. Nice. Yeah, that'd be good. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's there's so much thinking that's going on. I really do like what you were saying, Daryl, about, you know, the the simpler the game, it actually has to be more replayable. <laughs> well, and I think that's the elegance factor. When people see it and they discover an elegant game that's quick and simple, they really respect that. I think there's, you know, even talking Nitsi, obviously he's the master of that, but I mean, there's there are examples of games that, like, I just, I can always go to and, and feel confident in that the experience is going to be good and it's easy to teach, you know, and those are the games that hit the table because mm-hmm. you you feel confident in them, you you can really bring it to anyone and still have a really good time. You know, that's funny because, uh, I mean, Flaja is one of my favorite designers of all time, uh, but I don't, play, I don't table his games a lot because right. they're really complex, except for code names. Code names. <laughs> Oh, Scott, if you could sign any designer, who would yeah. it be? Who's the, who's the one that you want? Like, where's that? Oh. Where's that great white and, and any like that got away from you? Like you were close? You thought? Oh, well, Daryl Andrews got away from me Shut one time. Up. <laughs> yeah, right. I wish. Um, that's I don't know. That's a loaded question. Um, well, yeah, you don't have to answer it if you don't want. No, you, you know, I mean, I I think that there's there's several that I'd like to work with. Mm-hmm. I, I think that. Um, you know, a lot of them, though, too, are starting to do, um, you know, things like Vlada. Like they're starting their own companies, mm. right? Uh, and and you know, and I don't, I don't begrudge them that at all. I think it's if that's what they want to do, then more power to them. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, for me, it's it's probably it's probably the perfect storm of yeah. There's people that I'd like to work with, but then there's also um, whether or not we're the right fit for each other too. That, right. You know, I want I want it to work for both sides. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I think that's the fairest way to do it anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. I always I talk to new designers about it being a relationship, right? Yes. Yeah, Very definitely. Important. 
Tyler, uh, yeah. question for you, Scott. Um, yeah. When is Asmodee buying Renegade? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or when is Renegade buying Asmodee? I think that's that more like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's be realistic. Um, uh, no, that's probably very unlikely. Are, uh, are you happy being your own person? Oh. And would, would you would you sell, or you just want to keep keep trucking? No, I kind of want to keep trucking. Um, would you, you join know. a rebellion, like a, a, an alliance group of a band of brothers <laughs> and sisters? Smugglers that, and, yeah. and Wookiees. You know, what's, it's, what's really funny is that you are not the first person to ask me that today. Hey! <laughs> so, um, the long-term strategy. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I... I I mean, I wouldn't. I don't. I'm definitely open to working with other publishers. I mean, that's kind of been become a common thing now in our industry too. A lot of different co-publishing arrangements, which I think is really a wonderful thing. You wouldn't see this in most industries. No. That most of us are are very friendly competitors, which is really pretty cool. Really cool. Yeah. So. Oh, I wanted to pick your brain one more time, Scott. Um, okay. okay. So, marketing. Yes. Marketing. Marketing. Oh, marketing. yes. This is a good yes. one. All right. Do you do you? How do you market? How does Renegade market? Um. Okay. So that's uh, the best way to put this. So I think that the, that marketing kind of comes in phases. Um. You're, there's different audiences, and I think that a big part of um, where some people sometimes take missteps is that their timing is wrong. Um, I'm a firm believer in not marketing to the consumer until either right before or when they can actually get the game. Um, A lot of times I see people marketing their games like six, seven, eight months in advance. And in this market, it's really tough because there's so many messages out there. If I get you all excited now, but then I can't give you the game in eight months, like I got to do it all over again. Um, so for me, I personally, we market, um, I first start off marketing to retailers, and that's different, right? I want to educate the retailers about our game, and I, I spend a lot of time on that. Um, and then the next phase is kind of marketing to consumers. Um, and we've done a lot of different things. I mean, some of it's traditional, you know, social media. Uh, we do some print ads and distributors' catalogs, um, you know, online stuff, banner stuff. Um, and then uh, a lot of it, too, has been partnering with really good game stores to help us launch a brand. I mean, that's how we launched Lanterns. Um, I actually partnered with probably the top ten game stores in the U.S. and uh, showed them the game a few months in advance, and they all liked the game. And I asked them to focus on the game for about six weeks in their store, and I would make sure that they had plenty of copies and they would demo the game in their store and kind of just give us a springboard, and, and it worked really well. They all sold wow. about 50 copies in a month. Wow. Um, and that really kind of got the ball rolling, and then these are kind of the tastemakers of retail stores. Sure. Right? These are, uh, actually, I'm wearing one of their shirts today. I've got, you know, <laughs> what is it? Uh, Millennium Games go. up in Rochester, New York. Hey, uh, yeah. too far away. And... Um, you know, these stores kind of set the tone, and they're some of the best stores in the country. They really do a great job. So I do think marketing is something when a designer is looking for a publisher, it's probably the one thing that most designers overlook. Yes. Um, just just making the game and manufacturing it and, and getting it shipped from China is, is actually the easiest part. It's what you do with it afterwards, and there's a lot of 
publishers that really don't have the sales and marketing side of it figured out. And yeah. and and really, I don't you know, I don't I don't know how you really can be a publisher if you can't actually promote your game and market it and get it into consumers' hands. And um, it's not easy. Like it's it's really not easy. I spend way too much of my time on that when I want to be focused more on product development, and that's why next month we're bringing in a new person so I can kind of get sales and marketing off my plate. Oh, okay, so that's that. I was yeah. actually going to ask who, yeah. not who it is, but what their role right. will be. Yeah, their role will be sales and marketing. Nice. So, yeah. We're going to games. I think they've done some work with Amanda games. <laughs> <laughs> Armada. Yeah, Armada. Stores, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, we should probably wrap it up. I can't believe yes, how sir. fast the time flies. But uh, thanks again, Scott, for hanging out with us. Yeah, Scott, my pleasure. Really interesting stuff. I will someday pitch you a game that you will uh, sign, I hope. Uh, We're looking but, at stuff right now. Don't get well, away, there. Well, true, true. <laughs> I'm still hoping. And uh, anyone out there, as you've heard, uh, if you got a good game and you think it fits what Renegade's doing, uh, I'm sure you can track Scott down online or uh, schedule a time to see him at conventions. He's at most all, of them. All of them. He's at all yes. of them. <laughs> so uh, maybe uh, bribe him with some caffeine or food because he's running around all the time, but uh, yeah, we recommend... You, you would actually really like you a lot if you watched his booth while he went to the washroom. <laughs> That's what we say for everyone for booths. That is a way to earn some brownie points with publishers. Give them a break. Uh, especially let them get to a food truck. Yeah, you know, get them some, like you bring them some food, whatever. Right. It's all, Anything it's all like that good. can be very helpful. And Just I'm still, I'm still waiting breakfast. I'm still waiting for my Renegade hat. I still need Oh, I haven't Renegade made hats hat. yet. Well, I you need to get hats. Do you want a t-shirt? I can get sure. you a t-shirt. I'll right. do a shirt. Yeah, right. shirts are good. Right. We can start there. <laughs> <laughs> All nice. right, so let me just call up the last screen because I, I had it, and then it just went away on me. There we it have, is. We have Fuse at our local game store, so I'll go pick up a copy and hopefully do a video in the next couple weeks. I'll send you a copy. Oh, no, I don't. Save shipping. I've, I've got, like, hundreds of dollars in credit. They, I just take what I want. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so I, will, I will pick up Fuse. So. So on that note, stay tuned. You'll see a, a beautiful review of Fuse by the Beard and Meeple soon. And uh, keep making great games, and we look forward to playing your games soon. Where's my thing? I was just there. <laughs> it's not here. Just cut oh, it. It's not here. Here it is. No. <laughs> this thing. This thing. This thing. We're going to show this thing. Here it is. The, the thing. thing. Bam. In your face. There we go. So that's how you can reach us. And uh, we hope to hear from you soon.